All right, and we're live. All right, welcome to another episode of the Hakanoon Podcast. This week on Planet Internet, right? Edition. It's pretty new, and this is my first time joining. I'm Ling. I'm the COO at Hakanoon. I don't usually do editorial work, but I'm extremely like interested in podcasts. And just as a consumer of news in general, I feel like anyone who um, reads things or consumes any type of media would be a good fit to talk, you know, with their colleagues about the news of the week. But yeah, so on today edition, we have myself and Amy, our podcast manager, Lee Mark, our VP of Growth, Damien, our brand new shiny uh, podcast editor, which because we're producing more podcasts now, we actually welcome a podcast editor. And of course, Natasha, our VP of Editorial. Yay! <laughs> and we're going to uh, go through today, I'm the picker of these headlines. And as a summary, we're just going to go through each of these quickly and then open the floor for the rest of the team. The first article I want to point people's attention to is this thing by the CEO and founder of this company called Basecamp. For those of you who don't know, Basecamp is a project management tool company that is based in Chicago uh, and actually has been around for 20, 20 plus years. They stirred up pretty heated Twitter controversy when the CEO put out this manifesto, as you, if, if you will, about how they will no longer allow any conversations surrounding politics or society or advocacy, basically anything that's not work as they define it related within Basecamp. I'm gonna read you the sentence that I highlighted. Sensitivities are at 11 and every discussion remotely related to politics, advocacy or society at large quickly spins away from pleasant. Hence, no more societal and political discussions on our company Basecamp account. So that's the first one. And yeah, like this actually is pretty similar to a prior decision from a much larger company, Coinbase, who went public. And the CEO, Brian Armstrong, pretty much says the same thing. This was like six months ago, uh, back in September. And the policy is broader societal issues. We don't engage here when issues are unrelated to our core mission because we believe impact only comes with focus. And the title of the article is called Coinbase is a mission-focused company. So those are the first two, uh, two. I think instead of going through all the articles, I'm just going to, you know, give the floor for the rest of the team to just kind of dive in these two pretty similar news, one earlier than others. And yeah. Okay. Here yeah. is why this makes me so angry to hear about is because both of these CEOs, quite frankly, are white men. And when you have the power to say, we will not discuss politics in the workplace, it's because you have the privilege of not having to discuss it. It's because these things, these issues don't affect you. And so you have the liberty to say, I think we're going to opt out of this one. But these issues that they're talking about, like core human issues that they are avoiding, are not politics of like 
are yeah are not politics that you should avoid discussing they are human rights related issues and that shouldn't be a political statement if you have humans in your organization you have these issues. If you think about things like the Black Lives Matter uh, campaign and movement or the Stop AAPI Hate movement, and uh, let's talk about how the Derek Chauvin murder trial has affected the Black community. If you think that your Black community members of your organization are not in absolute destruct and like turmoil about this trial and all of the emotions that come with it and that would be affect their workplace then you are in denial like you need to be able to foster a workplace where you can have these kinds of conversations and say like look hey this is a really bad week for me because I'm going through a lot of emotions surrounding members of my community and my work might not be as great this week or whatever it might be. But being able to have that open discussion is so important and for companies to put the hammer down from the top, from the white level at the top and say, no, thanks, we're not going to discuss this is like such bullshit. I mean, <laughs> rant I <was> over. <laughs> I was gonna expect you to go this deep this early, but I yeah, mean, yeah. this this is exactly what we've been as a company dealing with for over a year now of how to balance the personal and the work, right? And to pretend that those are two separate things that has nothing to do with other and could be completely siloed. It's just either ignorant or uh, naive. And I'll give you an example. Like right now, we don't have a lot of our employees that regularly would show up in meetings and would work because they're based in India and India is going through a COVID crisis. And the last thing they can do right now is just to put on a brief face and I don't know, smile for the work. So the idea that they can just leave whatever that's made them and surrounds them with behind and focus on the work, it's just kind of mind blowing to me. Like I'm not even touching the politics or whatever you call it. I'm just talking about what it makes you a human, you know, existing in the, this world and working in the workplace. Like you cannot be a robot version of yourself, even if you try to. Absolutely, Ling. I think what I what disappoints me most is the missed opportunity in terms of teaching employees, right? Because as a company, you do take a leadership role and you do have this opportunity to create a culture in which you teach people to have constructive conversations around this and you give people who might not have had those tools be provided to them at school or at home the communication tools required and the empathetic tools required to have constructive conversations. And with this, you're saying, we're not even going to try. We're not going to face this. We're not going to dip our toes. We're going to just completely ignore it, dehumanize our employees, as you say, and not use it as a teaching opportunity whereby people could learn to have conversations, thriving communities, happen because people with conflicting ideas are able to hold space for each other and negotiate living together and that's a necessary part of society and if companies are going to take a cover your eyes i can't see it so therefore it's not happening policy then when do we learn to play nicely with our friends when do we learn to communicate nicely with people who disagree with us 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And yeah. I just want to like, like focus the attention on this sentence where he like spins away from pleasant, like pleasant for whom? Yes, exactly. Like, like, is it exactly pleasant for right you to live in this world, to have to go to where you are isolated from your friends and your family and whatever, like Limar, for example, right here is in quarantine and it's because of COVID or myself, I'm an Asian woman and, you know, I have been pretty much traumatized by what was happening earlier this year, helping with the like Asian company. So like, I wouldn't say exactly that without talking about any of these things are pleasant. Yeah. So, so, so to shy away, exactly like you say, Amy, it's just because you can afford to shy away, right? Like it's actually not pleasant for you, but that doesn't mean that it's like a comfortable and pleasant for the rest of your teams and for the rest of your employees. And another point I want to make is what does this attract? Like once you have a policy in place like this, Okay, then most of the people who are pleasant and who are okay with policy like this are the people just like you who don't need and don't want and don't have to engage in any of the policies or discussions or societal or movements or anything like that. So it's like further the silo that you exactly want to avoid, you know, when they talk about there should not be any division, there should, you know, we should work to unite instead of divide. Well, this. This is the most political statement I feel like these guys uh, will be making in the future being so apolitical. Um, can I uh, yeah. clarify something? It is something an and, um, a political sure. statement. Can I clarify something, make an insult, and then ask a uh, play devil's advocate? <laughs> so this uh, sentence here, it says, um, no more societal or political discussions on our company base camp account. Then it goes on to say, these conversations should happen on Signal, WhatsApp, or even a personal Basecamp account, but it can't happen where the work happens anymore. First of all, who's using Basecamp to send messages? Like, that doesn't happen. Like, there's, there's commenting Basecamp. on product cards, so <laughs> who's having little conversations there in the first place? Second of all, like, why did they publish a blog post about this? Like, shouldn't everybody know this would not be taken well? Like, why would they even publicize this? You know what I mean? Like, is it... Yeah. No one asked in the first place. Like, nobody was like, hey, why isn't Basecamp commenting on BLM? So, like, what a bad decision overall. Like, why, why would you publicize this? But um, right. lastly, to pay devil's advocate, I understand one reason for this. Like, imagine you have a company with, like, a thousand people. Mm-hmm. And I think we would be naive to say that all thousand people in a random sample of Americans, for example, would all have the same political views. So mm-hmm. what if you had a situation where coworkers started to get into arguments during work over political issues like that? And um, it, it puts you in a really weird position, wouldn't it? Like, do you have to take sides? Do you have to mediate? And if you, ha- if you take a certain side, does that mean you have to alienate the rest of your like, employees that don't take the side you do? Mm-hmm. So I could understand one reason for doing this, but like they went about it all in the wrong way, I'd say. Yeah. You know what I think about that is that when you silo people to not discuss these things, it takes away the personalization of it. But imagine if I am a liberal and I have a neighbor who is a Republican and, you know, I love my neighbor. We're very friendly, but she's a Republican. So, you know, like 
we're not friends or whatever but the thing the same thing translates into the workplace i think like when you have that personal connection with someone that goes mm -hmm. beyond like a stranger level so say you are co-workers in this case being able to say, oh, I strongly believe in Black Lives Matter versus someone who says, oh, I think that that's not the right track to go down or whatever their opinion is, then like it takes away, if you have zero discussion about it, it takes away the personalization of it. But if you allow discussion to take place in the workplace, you can build connections with people around these subjects that might inform you better. Or at the end of the day, you just have to be an adult and say, like we have different views and that's okay and we don't have to be best friends but we're still going to work together and we're still going to be like co-workers so yeah i think yeah, the I, opposition to this is never about oh like the division uh or like people having different opinions and that sucks uh it's more about making this overarching policy pretty much shuts down every single connection like Amy mentioned and also opportunity like Natasha mentioned to learn and to grow not as robots right like we are humans and we need the kind of things that provide context to who we are as, as persons so I'm mean, not even talking about like we need to all agree on one thing like obviously we're not going to agree on one thing but making this uh, a no politics uh, policy, it's just another super political announcement that I don't think will, will bring people together like it's intended. And then imagine when issues become more quote unquote heavy or serious than something and something like a sexual assault, let's say. If you work at a workplace that doesn't promote or doesn't allow you to have any kind of political discussion would it not be terrifying to report to someone an organization who is not open to any kind of non-work-based that is not corporate called to foster especially when we look at stats like the fact that majority of millennials nowadays are looking are actively looking for workplaces that foster workplace diversity and inclusion as a main uh, feature or benefit of choosing a workplace so they're really alienating a lot of future employees i think with this policy as well yep um anyone yep. <laughs> Further comment um, on this topic, or should we move on to the next? On to the next. What else do we have for this week? Let's move on. So another headline that I picked is actually from my podcast rotation that I listen to every day. And this week on The Daily, Michael Barbaro discussed why Russia is exporting so much vaccine. So the paragraph is pretty limited, but the gist of the podcast is that Russia uh, vaccine called Sputnik uh, is actually pretty effective and in the realm of Pfizer as well as Moderna in the 90s. However, instead of vaccinating its people like America is doing, Russia is actually exporting it to like neighboring countries, countries in South America and just countries around the world. And the thesis of the podcast is 
it actually dated back all the way back to the Cold War where Sputnik, like the name, if it rings any bell, it's the satellite, you know, that that Russia uh, at the time was exerting its power as a powerhouse in the world in the space kind of race. And now it's a pretty similar thing they're doing, but instead with vaccine. I brought this up because I thought it's pretty interesting how the two countries, you know, with a lot of power and with a lot of science scientists that are extremely like one of the world's best have completely different policies um, on the vaccine. And I know it's not that tech related, but this is something that we deal with every single day for over a year now. And talking about the distribution of vaccine and talking about your own personal experience with vaccine, where you are, because we're such a you know, international company, I thought it would be a good idea. So yeah, open floor for people to comment on this. Yeah, if you scroll down a little bit, Lynn, it has the overview and it was kind of comparing how Russia's uh, approach to this is the opposite of America's in which uh, at one point they banned the export of vaccines. And I can kind of understand both sides, like wanting to protect your people first, even at the expense of neighboring countries. I think that makes sense. But if I were to put myself in the mind of a military dictator without human emotions, I would understand that that's actually a pretty smart move because uh, COVID-19, like for the most part, the risk groups are your senior citizens and your aging population. So if I were a dictator without human emotions and without morals, you're sacrificing an aging part of your population to gain favor with a bunch of countries when a lot of countries are at their most vulnerable. So it makes sense in like a game of chess, but obviously it's incredibly inhumane and I'd say immoral, like I could never make such a decision, but that's just my take. Yeah, it's interesting because in the international vaccine space, there is now countries such as the Maldives who are offering vaccines as like a tourist destination hub uh, and like a benefit of coming to visit them now. So if you go to the Maldives now, um, you can get a vaccine as a visitor. The same thing actually from Canada to America. Apparently, if you as a Canadian citizen go down to America, you can get a vaccine. So it's interesting to see how the distribution is going worldwide as well because a lot of countries don't have access for everyone to have the vaccine yet. And so people are shopping at other countries to find their vaccines. Yeah, I also have been thinking about how this piece of news is related to the very recent, recently controversial ban on raw materials for COVID from the US. So India, for example, is experiencing an outbreak right now hundreds of thousands of people we they are actually uh, vaccine and they can't even give people their own vaccine because there's a ban on raw material from the u.s so it's just i mean it i don't know where i'm going exactly with this thought but human lives versus a political future of a country uh basically being at stake right now and even if you're not a dictator, you know, um, the person that controls Russia, even if you are Biden, even if you are uh, Trudeau, it's hard to balance it all and make everybody happy. 
And somewhere down along the lines, like somebody's will always be collateral. So in this case, it's the Russian people not having access to vaccine. But in the other case is, you know, India experiencing or so any other country with not as rich as America, uh, not getting enough access and just pretty helplessly watch its people. So yeah, I mean, Vietnam, for example, uh, actually secure uh, a little bit of the Sputnik vaccine from Russia early on, like as you guys, if you guys remember, it's August of last year when they announced that they came up with that vaccine and everybody was like, yeah, that cannot be. But it turns out after a trial to be pretty effective. So I think like around 50 plus countries around the world already has access to that vaccine, which other, like otherwise would not be able to be available in their country, you know, like the US is not doing anything. Like only recently they have the talks about giving away the AstraZeneca vaccine that um, it's just sitting there because it's not uh, approved yet uh, for emergency uh, use in the US. So yeah, it's, I just feel it's, it's hard. It's even if you, uh, whatever spectrum of, of the political um, democracy or not you are, it's, it's hard to make this kind of decision without hurting at least one group of people or more. I guess let's move on to the two Hakanoon stories. So I choose pretty similar articles uh, on Hakanoon top stories last week. Both has got to do with the scenery uh, of economic development in Africa. One is by Brian Wallace, our favorite Brian Wallace, talking about why Africa is becoming the land of startup opportunity, discussing basically the rate of growth for startups in Africa, how that uh, by 2025 will actually be the world's best, if not one of the best hubs in the world for, for startups. And then the other one is more Africans walk towards financial freedom due to cryptocurrencies by uh, at no name C. 3PO. I think this is a, a guy uh, from our friend at Freetown who discussing specifically the importance of crypto and financial freedom for uh, African countries. So without further ado, I would like to give the floor to Natasha, who's our resident South African uh, <laughs> in the group. Indeed. Yeah. First thing to say is just, it's so exciting to see adoption happening on that continent. It's a place where, I mean, speaking for South Africa, 55% of the population lives in extreme poverty below the breadline. And just the idea of the financial freedom that comes with cryptocurrency adoption down there is huge. A larger percent of the African continent depend, depends on remittances from family members that are working uh, overseas and earning in stronger currencies. So you just can't compare with the with the cost of moving money around through banks, etc. It's interesting. I think uh, the also the fact that it's such a mobile continent is worrying from a security perspective. But I'm sure that there are multiple startups developing in that niche as well. Um, so that's something to watch definitely and definitely an opportunity for educating um, people on the continent about things like, you know, uh, wallets that aren't hot 
and, and just really securing their assets. Um, and a personal experience I'd love to share about this is the experience that I had working with a blockchain startup in South Africa, which I, I really thought was a cool idea. Very early days, we're talking like six years ago, which in South Africa is early um, for adoption, but they had, they had come up with this concept where they would embed Bitcoin bounties into screener copies of Oscar-winning films or films screener copies of films that were sent out uh, for Oscars consideration or you know any kind of awards consideration. Um, so they would embed these cryptocurrency bounties into the files that were sent out for awards consideration and then inform a network of bounty hunters as they called them to look out for these files on the dark web and also just on various torrent sites etc and it was just such a great concept but six years ago when it was starting up you couldn't get investors nobody wanted to bet on blockchain as a technology there was just so much skepticism so yeah for me it's just really exciting to see these kinds of stories coming out now um, and seeing that adoption is indeed up and i've read that it's mostly among the younger population which is also quite cool so yeah next generation stuff yeah i mean both stories mention the fact that africa is actually one of the youngest if not the youngest kind of working population in the world and by 2025 it will have the most number of just working age um, people like just available for labor. So that's something interesting that I found super potential. Um, another thing is, um, I I'm wondering out of all these startups that are booming, like Brian mentioned in his article, like how many of them are based elsewhere? And like, you know, like, uh, like you mentioned with the remittances as well, kind of like funnel uh, money from elsewhere back to Africa as part of this like pride, right? Like a proud uh, African or South African. And then I'm bringing back and I'm like uh, investing back in like where I'm from, which is, I thought was uh, like super interesting and, and beautiful. And also like another piece I was, I didn't mention in the list of the four or five URLs I um, uh, put here, is the fact that startups, I think all over the world, are experiencing the most kind of like exponential growth right now in Q1 of 2021. So according to PitchBook, apparently $69 billion have been raised for like startups in Q1 of 2021 alone, which is like many, many folds that of similar you know, quarter uh, prior, and I don't know if this is just like pent up demand or the fact that, you know, all of these clever investors just kind of have money lying around and now like finally can invest again. But I'm wondering is like how, what's the percentage of, of that big pool of money that actually goes to like African startups or startups that like serving the population in Africa and like is the potentials of Africa as a continent like mashing up with like how much attention is being paid to it or like you know how investors are looking at it yeah I think you've got to be fairly uh risk tolerant <laughs> to play that game it's it's such a volatile place in most regions even South Africa now I mean it's it's funny when you talk to an African about it we've grown up you know which I'm 31 now I've had 31 years of people telling me that my economy is going to go to junk status 
and it just somehow keeps clinging on. And I've just, I've just got to speak to the African resilience. And you know, as they say, necessity is the mother of all invention. So that place is just so resilient. It's so innovative. And yeah, I think it's, I, I would bet on Africa personally, but I, I'm biased. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this stats, look at this stat right here. Um, for those uh, audio listeners, uh, we're looking at a graph. 27% of African women are engaged in early stage startup. Uganda has the highest percentage of female owned businesses in the world, closely followed by Botswana. Like I have no idea any of these. Um, Interesting. And it's kind of super encouraging and uh, amazing to learn yeah. about. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's really great. Yeah, Why do you think that is the case? I refer back to what I earlier said, necessity being the mother of all invention. We have, yeah, uh, yeah we, Africa is a, is a continent of, of, of people who are in need and entrepreneurship is something that is in the soul, I think, of the people there. It always has been, whether, you know, like from low scale, very informal businesses to, to bigger, large scale factories. And I mean, it's just something that's is in our is in our blood in terms of needing since you know the post-colonial removal and yeah I won't I won't use a strong word to say the kind of mess that they left. So since then it's just it's really been booming and I think that the only thing stopping it from growth is the corruption on the political side because that leads to a lot of volatility. So our politicians for the most part are letting us down. Good revolutionaries make really bad Democrats as a general rule. Um, we've seen it time and time again. The people who, uh, you know, throw a really good revolution are really bad at leading the country after that in a democratic fashion that is beneficial to the people. And a lot of corruption is happening. So that's undermining the efforts of these, of these startups. But on the ground, the people are ready and willing, you know, and, and going for it. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I agree with what Natasha said. I talked to, I did a podcast actually with Nataraj Sindam, one of our um, uh, Indian contributors, and we were talking about how the startup culture in India was booming. And I think it just goes back to what Natasha said. I think in these countries where the like national wage is lower and the poverty line is higher, like you have to hustle to survive. And as soon as you give pe like hustlers, these people who are natural born entrepreneurs, tools to succeed, they will succeed. And um, I, well, the reason I think it's happening now is just because of the technology. Like 50 years ago, the barrier to work was, you know, you had to have an education, you have to go to college, you need to go to these interviews. But now the barrier to work is an internet connection. All you need is an internet connection and a skill or like not even that much of a skill and you can market yourself on Fiverr, you can market yourself on social media, you can do all of these things and it's just made possible by the internet. So as soon as like these lower income areas get the internet and they get blockchain, I don't think it's a surprise at all that like the startup economies in these uh, lower income countries are booming. And crypto, right? Cause like mm -hmm. uh, a lot of like, uh, you know, uh, a, a lot of the crypto boom comes from necessities rather than like, oh, it's just a luxury to have. It's because the banking system just sucks, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, in many mm -hmm. parts of the world, uh, not many people like actually can just go through financial system pretty easily. So in a lot of these parts, it's actually 
like what's the alternative they have oh look crypto like instead of waiting and not being able to rely on uh, any of the big guys like they will be able to do that uh, control like take control of their own fate uh, via like a much better more secure crypto transaction which i thought is like extremely interesting yeah yeah i was gonna say do you think that as the internet becomes more decentralized away from banking corporations and from big tech organizations and from the big corporations that hold the power in america especially that as we decentralize from those companies that uh africa and other third world countries will start becoming more popular with startups my guess would be yes but i feel like we are still trying to figure uh, navigate these waters and uh one kind of potential obstacle i can see is just you know these big guys are big for a reason like they're gonna find a way to regulate, to control, to just kind of tell, condition the market what to do. Um, you know, like one example is last two weeks ago now, Fidelity, Coinbase, as well as another company are just kind of partnering together to regulate Bitcoin a lot more and cryptocurrencies in general in the U.S. And I mean, Congress people in the U.S. are looking into uh, proposals uh, to basically do the opposite of what like the hardcore decentralizer want them to do right which is regulate centralize uh doing more of the regular banking stuff so i don't know it's um it's interesting to see how this plays out and basically we're living through history right now um and we're gonna have you know in 10 years 20 years 30 years some things to tell our children of like what it's like you know during this time when people are still trying to figure out what is crypto and how decentralization will play a part in um, our children's or our grandchildren's future. Yeah, our kids will be like, you used to use paper money, like a video game? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, cool. I think that's all I've got for today in terms of headlines picking. Any wise word of wisdom? Any (laughs) last note on anything you guys want to leave listeners with? I read a great quote today that said, uh, the cost of anything is the amount of life you have to exchange for it. Whoa. Ooh. That's deep. I'm just going to keep you all there in an existential <laughs> crisis. <laughs> <laughs> yep. There's no such thing as free. You always give up something. Amen. Uh, return to, to quote unquote free. Yeah. I, I can really with that. <clears throat> yeah. Awesome. I like that. That's a great stopping point right there. Everybody. Just okay. Can, you so don't today's... have to work for the rest of the day. <laughs> yeah. Today's podcast was produced by Hacker Noon. It was hosted by Natasha Ling, Lee Mark, Damien, and myself, Amy, and it was edited by our new podcast editor, Damien. Damien, welcome to the team. Woohoo! We're so excited to have you. All right. If you like this episode, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to it and give it a five-star rating, and we will see you guys next week. All right. Bye, everyone. Thank you. See you on the internet. See you on the internet.